0: From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I hope you're having a lovely holiday season. So not too long ago, I was looking at a map of Sullivan County, and one of the things that really stands out when you look at a map of this area is this big chunk of undeveloped land in the southeastern corner of the county. And this place is called the Bashakill Wetlands. And at the heart of this is the Bashakill Wildlife Management Area, which is protected and overseen by the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. And this tract of land takes up almost 1% of the entire land area of Sullivan County. If you don't think you've been there before, think again. You've probably driven right through it on State Route 17, which is the major highway that kind of runs north-south through Sullivan County. And so right between exits 113 and 114, the highway dips into this pretty deep valley. And if you're coming from Monticello headed towards Middletown, you probably know the valley I'm talking about. It's about a six-mile journey down into the valley. And then it rises pretty quickly back up out of the valley again. And so that valley is the Hill. And so next time you're driving through and have a few minutes to spare... It is totally worth taking exit 113 and finding one of the pull-offs along the Bashakill to get out and walk around. Why, you might ask? Well, as it turns out, in addition to being a sightly slice of nature, the Bashakill is one of the most biodiverse areas in the northeastern United States. And perhaps a few numbers will help illustrate this. So, so far, there have officially been recorded 220 species of birds. 40 species of butterflies, 40 species of reptiles and amphibians, 30 species of fish, and over 200 species of wildflowers. Just in this 4,000-ish acres of the Bashkill wetlands alone. So, in most episodes of Close to Home, we talk about issues and we think about solutions. But to ring in the new year on a high note, we're taking today to celebrate a piece of our area that... In my humble opinion, deserves more celebrating, and what better way to experience this place than by coming out here and taking a walk to see what we can see? And that's where I am right now. I'm walking along the DNH Canal Trail, which basically parallels much of the Bashakil Wetlands. It's about a 5.7 mile trail, and because it was once the DNH Canal, it is almost perfectly straight and almost perfectly flat through this whole area. And so it is a favorite among locals for biking and jogging and just coming out to do some birdwatching. And even though it's December and it's a pretty chilly day, there are a bunch of people here, most of them with cameras and binoculars, just coming out to see what they can see in this really special natural area. So, the main organization that has been advocating for the protection of this space is the Bashakill Area Association. And they have been working to ensure high standards for responsible human development in this area since 1972. And the other day, I sat down with Jackie Broder, the current president of the Bashakill Area Association, to learn more about the history of the organization and also the Bashakill itself.
1: My name is Jackie Broder. I am the new president of the Bashakill Area Association, and I'm also the director of the Mammocating Environmental Education Center since November of 2019.
0: Now, could you break these two things down? What is the Bashakill Area Association? What is the Mammocating Environmental Education Center? And how do these things differ? Because I know that the BKAA also has an environmental education component to it. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Okay. So the Bashkill Area Association is a watchdog organization as well as an educational organization that started in 1972. We just had our 50-year anniversary. The Bashkill Wetland is a wildlife management area, DEC owned. So we have a memorandum of understanding as a volunteer group. And basically, we watch over the wetland we do cleanups. We do other other volunteer stuff, but uh, we've taken it a step further, and that we've become a watchdog group because for many years there was development proposals that would have severely impacted the the wetland, and so we've been to town board meetings and planning board meetings and started petitions and sometimes lawsuits in order to make sure that the Bashakil wetland stays pristine and a vital component of not only the community, but for wildlife and, and the ecosystem in the area. The Mammocating Environmental Education Center uh, was opened in twenty September 2017. Uh, the town of Mammocating bought a house that was in foreclosure right on the wetland and uh, Renovated, it, turned it into a a nature center, and mm-hmm. the purpose of of the nature center is to provide environmental education programs, not only about the Bashak Hill but about the ecosystem in the area. We're a hub as far as information goes for the town. Um, we're basically a an ecotourism hub. And a couple of years ago, the town adopted a comprehensive plan that is centered around ecotourism. That further protected the area from development that wouldn't necessarily be good for the for the area. So we work hand in hand, we're different organizations, but we would be considered sister organizations. Um, one run by the town, one's a not-for-profit group, but we we do work together.
0: When we talk about ecotourism in the town of Mamikating, are we mainly referring to the bashical? wildlife area are there are there other areas that we're also talking about here?
1: So the wildlife management area is 3,000 acres. however, um, it's the wetland. We also have extensive trail systems on the west and east sides of the of the wetland. Um, we have the long path that goes not only along the wetland but also along the Showangum Ridge there's a DNH canal trail that has stops all along, you know, between here and Kingston, there's a few different venues that, that need to be protected and preserved and become ecotourism points of interest. We have history points of interest. We have the environmental points of interest. Um, So it's really good that the town is finally seeing like what a gem we have in those aspects. And They've made the steps necessary to for the town to move in that direction. A few years ago, there was um, a proposal for a huge development right on the bridge of the Shuangam. And these proposals will become less and less because of the zoning laws being changed and because of the view that the comprehensive plan brings in.
0: So I think it's probably safe to say that the Bashakil area, including the wildlife management area of the stream associated with it is probably one of the most significant and most unique and most ecologically diverse areas, certainly in Sullivan County and perhaps the broader region on a whole. But for folks who maybe aren't familiar with the Bashakill or haven't been there before, um, could you give kind of an overview of just what this is that we're talking about?
1: Absolutely. So so going way back, um, about 16,000 years ago, um, glaciers moved down off the Catskill Ridge, down the Pine Kill Stream, and where the Pine Kill met the Bashakill Creek, a natural dam formed. And that created a natural, uh, a glacial lake. And pretty much the whole Hudson Valley was a glacial lake at that time. It was mostly open streams, prairies, not a lot of thick vegetation. And then over time, as the vegetation came in, plant life, animal life, decay, that slowly filled in the the lake, and now we have the wetland that we see today. The Lenape tribes uh, have been here since at least 1100 AD, and this has always been a hugely significant area, not only because of the watershed, the beauty, but because of the medicinal plant life in the area. And the Basha Kills named after Basha, who was uh, not only a Native American princess, but she was also uh, a shaman, a medicine woman, which for her to be a medicine woman at that time was unique. But not only was she a medicine woman, she was a very powerful medicine woman. And the reason that she settled here was because the Shiwangum Ridge and the Catskill Ridge are both made up of different soil types. One's acidic, one's sweet. And because of that and the wetland, you had every type of medicinal plant available for use except for saltwater species. Um, and we even have some like arid species like prickly pear cactus. It's an incredibly diverse and rich area when it comes to plant life. So that's why her settlement was here and people would come from all around um, because of her and that reason. So it's been a gem since the beginning Um, and the the biodiversity still continues to this day. Over 200 species of birds live here Uh, during migration, spring and fall migration. Thousands of species stop here. It's a major uh, watering spot on on the migration uh, skyway all kinds of mammals, all kinds of insect and fish. You know, we have the bowfin, which is a unique fish. You don't find it in many areas. Um, That's an oxygen-breathing fish. Um, We have the most diverse population of dragonflies in the area. It's an important uh, ecological spot for not just us, but many, many, many different kinds of species.
0: So for birdwatchers or anglers or hunters what are some of the species that folks often get most excited about that will make them come Mm. long distances to come to the Basha
1: Yeah. So for birders, like I said, it's huge, huge spot during migration. One of the reasons it was uh, protected in 1972 was because there was a need for black duck and wood duck reproductive habitat. So this is an ideal spot for them, um, an area where, there's a lot of vegetation so they can hide in between the vegetation and, and nest comfortably during the migrations we get. Oh, it's just, we had a flock of snow buntings come through uh, the past two winters, which is highly unusual. This last spring, we had tundra of swans uh, flocking here for a few days, every kind of warbler, every kind of raptor. You just never know what's going to show up here bird wise. Um, there's a lot of, you know, things that you normally wouldn't see. One of the unique things about the Bashkill as a wetland is we have every kind of wetland represented here at the Bashakill. So that means that fish, like we have bass, we have, um, you know, the sunfish, but we also have trout because there's areas of the Bashakill that are cool and, and fast running water, where in other areas um, it's slow and still. So the diversity is unique compared to other places. Um, We have otter as far as mammals go. We have beaver. We have muskrats. A bear are frequent. um, Bobcat once in a while in the woodland parts. So uh, again, it's, it's diverse.
0: So getting back to the Bashkill Area Association, what are some of the major issues and and threats to this area that the BKAA has has worked to go up against to protect this region?
1: So the major uh, issues have been development. When I moved here in 2004, the big big push was close down the uh, Yukaguni-Maitake mushroom plant, um, which would have spewed thousands of gallons of water and steam into the air on a regular basis and on a daily basis and been a huge, huge detriment to the area. There was Seven Peaks, which was a huge, the huge housing development that I spoke of on the Schwankum Ridge, where they wanted to put basically a slew of mansions and then and other housing down the whole east side of the ridge most recently is um, Thompson Education Center. That was a huge proposal that would have had a college and a ton of housing and a shopping center and a water park. And at one point, it was in Mammocating and also the town of Thompson. Early on, Mammocating saw the threat of this and, and said no. But we we're right near the Thompson mammacating line. So it still would have affected the Bashakill. So we were, we watched that very closely and attended all the Thompson town meetings. Um, we started letter writing campaigns and petitions and and since the the comprehensive plan, we were our, our former president Paula Medley, she was the driving force as far as advocacy for the wetland and making sure there was no improper development. Um she attended every town board meeting, every planning board meeting she was she was there she was our presence for many, many years. so when this comprehensive plan came on came into fruition, she was asked to be on the committee um and that was a huge step as far as town relations with the Bashakil um because a lot of times we were seen as we were a pain because we brought up the questions that needed to be asked and we we, Brought in hydrogeologists and engineers uh, to make sure that the proper tests were done. We made sure that the environmental laws were were followed. So the fact that she was asked to come to the table and work on this comprehensive plan was huge. And it was a turning point for the town to show that, you know, yeah, we see the importance of this wetland. We see how this can can benefit us not only as, you know, environmentally, but also uh Economically, so that really changed the whole direction of the town. So now, when pro- projects are brought in, the the planning board, the town board, they have to they have to um, follow the comprehensive plan, or at least they should, and they are. And things have kind of calmed down in that area uh, recently. So now we've been able to focus more on education programs and and promoting the town in a more positive light, instead of always being seen as down on business, you know. Now we're supporting sustainable business. For example, there was a um, a solar farm that just proposed um, near the airport, and we were there for the meetings. We asked questions. Some things were changed to make it more environmentally sound, and we see that we need we need business like that in the area. And while we weren't 100 happy with everything about it, you know, we supported it because that's what the community needs.
0: Switching gears to the education arm of the BKAA, in addition to the education work that the Mammocating Environmental Education Center is doing, could you talk about some of the specific work that is being done in both of those to help educate the community about environmental issues in the context of this this resource of the BASHAKIL?
1: Sure. So the BASHAKIL Association has always sponsored walks on the BASHAKIL, um, We have a walk every year um, during spring migration and and fall migration, birding walks. We have a a herpetology walk every year run by Bill Cutler, who is an amazing resource when it comes to amphibians and reptiles. We do canoeing, uh, lead canoeing um, treks twice a year in the spring and the fall. Sometimes three times a year we'll do a moonlight one, you know, general uh, nature walk by Jack Austin. Uh, We do um, astronomy programs with uh, Catskill Astronomy Club, John Kosajansky. Those have been some of the the things that we do on a yearly basis. And so the Mammacating Environmental Education Center does environmental education programs. We do history programs um, about history of the area. We just had a a program on Joseph Brandt, which was amazing. Um, we want to get more uh, Native American programs here. Um, we also have a summer program for kids, we, we, a, a nature camp that we do every year, day camp. So we stick within our mission of promoting the environment um, and hit local history as much as possible.
0: So how do both the Bashkal Area Association and the mamikating Environmental Education Center get funded?
1: So the Hillary Association is 100% funded by donations. We have a membership of over 800 people. You know, some are here year-round, some are, some are residents. A few just lived here at one point but no longer live here. I mean, our newsletter goes out across the country. The Mammocating Environmental Education Center is funded uh, by the town uh, the building is maintained, owned and maintained by the town, as is the, the the land, five acres, my salary, and one part-time person. It's not nearly enough. So uh, I started a not-for-profit arm of the organization called the Friends of Meek, mamma Rome Education Center. It's an amazing volunteer group. I would say the good core of it is about 10 people who have just stepped up and gone above and beyond.
0: Last question for you. When I was growing up, we always called the Bashakil, the Bashakil swamp. Do you reject having it called a swamp?
1: I do not reject it being called a swamp because a swamp is a form of wetland. That made it negative when people wanted to just fill them in and develop over it. Mm. Um, so, you know, swamp connotates mosquitoes and dirty water and, and in actuality, It's not. I mean, yeah, there's insects here. Yeah, there's mosquitoes here. Wetlands are extremely important to our environment. You know, they clean our water. They provide habitat to, I believe it's like two thirds of the endangered and threatened species that we that we now have uh, in this country. Back in the day, we didn't take care of our sewage the way we're supposed to. So that was dirty. Well, there was dirty water. There was standing sewage. You know, and these areas were filled in. I mean, five corners in New York City used to be a wetland, but because it got so disgusting, they filled it in and they built over it, just like most of Manhattan, you know, it's, so that's where the negative connotation came from. And then it was an excuse to develop, to put our malls on it and, and that kind of thing. But a swamp is actually just one form of a wetland and it's something that needs to be respected, just like the other forms of the wetlands and other natural areas.
0: other active members of the Bashakill Area Association is Samara Ferris, who, along with her husband Paul Danino, co-owns the Bashakil Vineyards, one of the only wineries in this region. To get the scoop on how they manage to grow grapes and produce wine here in the Catskills, and on a nature preserve, no less, I gave Samara a ring.
2: My name is Samara Ferris, and I own Bashi Hill Vineyards with my husband, Paul Danino. He gets all the credit. He's the one who actually bought this land in 2001, and he planted 800 grapevines to start with by hand in 2005 and opened in 2007. We met about seven years ago now, and I do all the food and the aesthetics and all the, the weird paintings and the drawings everywhere, and he does the wine, so it's a really good combo. He bought this land actually for hunting purposes and never did he ever think he would have a winery. Never. It was not an intention. It was not an inkling. Um, so it's kind of a mix of fortune, hard work, and what, you know, being unhappy will drive you to do. So he planted all 800 starting in 2005 and thought maybe I'll just make some wine here and people can come pick it up. And maybe eventually it'll just be you know, an, enough for me to be able to quit this job. So he also thought about a ginseng farm and he also he also thought about a brewery. So this was the one that won over.
0: Why was it the one that won over? And also, as far as I know, this area is not well known for winemaking. So how did this become a a possibility here?
2: He actually was talking to some friends Um, out in Napa and he was telling them about where he lived and in upstate New York and about his conundrum of what to do with land and how he hated his job in New Jersey and all that. And he wanted to, you know, live in a rural area again. And they said, well, New York, I mean, that's a great area to grow grapes. And he was like, grapes in New York. And he had never heard of that. This was, you know, in 2000 and, and probably three at the time, not many people had, been involved in the New York wine and grape scene on like a large scale. So he did a little research and he took some Cornell classes. He learned how to make wine. He found out about hybrids that could grow up here. And he said, let's, you know, let's try it. Um, So we grow some hybrids here. There it's a tough area to grow grapes. We are on the wetlands, which is magical. It is the only way we could really grow grapes here, um, since it's a little microclimate. So that fog comes off the wetlands that evaporate, and it kind of cloaks all these grapes and protects them during these really cold weather. Whereas in you know the Adirondacks or n- more northern uh, New York, you really have the cold snaps just too cold for most grapes. So we're really lucky. Even if we were a quarter of a mile up the mountain, it might be impossible to grow these.
0: So what kind of wines are these hybrid grapes producing?
2: Maybe to backtrack a little bit, there's two really different kinds of grapes. There's hybrids and there's vinifera. So hybrids are the American root grape stock. So these are the grapes that existed wild in America for thousands of years. And vinifera are the traditional European uh, grape vines that had been grown in Europe for Thousands of years. And the difference really is the flavor. So you have, and also the temperature growing here. So, vinifera is, you know, something like a Chardonnay, something like your Merlot. Those are really sensitive grapes. Uh, they don't like it very cold, but they produce really excellent, really complex, really floral, rounded, dynamic wines. And hybrid grapes have not been created as a winemaking grape for very long. So they've had a lot less uh, hybridization and generational picking out of of types and, and qualities than vinifera. So these grapes are very what they call foxy, which is a fruit forward, grapey, almost jolly rancher kind of flavor. So like, and if you get the reds that are hybrids, those are like really dark purple, black, rich, inky, uh, maybe even really spicy or peppery flavors. So they're just a lot stronger, but they're also stronger in that they can grow in temperatures that vinifera cannot. And interestingly, when Europeans brought uh, their vinifera grapevines over to the Americas, the diseases uh, that we had in the Americas were brought back to Europe and wiped out almost all the vinifera in all of Europe. So now vinifera even grown in Europe is on American rootstocks. So you'll have yeah, an original hybrid rootstock from America and on top of that you're having a merlot or you're having a chardonnay. And that's just the the grape that's growing, but the root is actually like an American root, which is very interesting I think.
0: Could you walk me through a little bit of the wine making process and does it differ at all for these more cold weather grapes than it would for making something like a chardonnay or merlot
2: Sure um no, the process really isn't different it just depends on the wine you want to make so we've got you know a red wine process a white wine process we've got a rosé process so let's go through maybe a red wine how about that So it's fall, we're gonna go pick our grapes. We're gonna bring our grapes in, we're pouring them into a a crusher and destemmer. So this is a a big metal machine that's automatic and it has these blades that are constantly turning and we're pouring bins and bins of grapes into this machine. And what it's doing is it's macerating, so it's slicing the berries and at the same time, it's also taking the stems off and spitting them out and we'll put those in our compost. All of that is hooked up to a tube. This tube is getting that mash and it's putting it into a large stainless steel tank. So that's sitting there. It's going to be fermenting for about five to seven days. We want the area to be warm and we have to do press downs uh, twice a day, which is this where you get this large metal rod with a flat disc on the bottom. And you're pushing down all these grape skins because what you're doing during this process is you're really having the juice of the wine mingle with these grape skins. And that's where you're going to get your deep red color. That's where you're going to get a lot of your fruit flavors. And to make sure it's evenly distributed, that flavor and that grape skin contact, you're pushing those grape skins down twice a day because they have a tendency to float. Uh, after five to seven days, you're going to get that. And we're going to put it through a press. There's different kinds of presses, but we'll just say there's a bladder press, which uses uh, air pressure to press that whole mixture. We're going to take those used skins and we're going to put those in our compost. And then we get that raw wine that's pressed out, that red raw wine. It's opaque. It's cloudy. It's it's sweet because it hasn't been, you know, fermented dry into a full wine yet. And we're getting that wine and putting it into wooden barrels, which we age in our wine cave for a minimum of two years. And then there's a whole process of racking where we're taking off the dead yeasts and all those things. And we're taking that beautiful wine and we're putting it in another barrel. And then we're putting it back into the cleaned barrel. And after we do that a few times, your wine is ready to drink. So that's a red wine process. And a white wine's similar except for instead of fermenting on the skins and pressing you're doing that whole crushing and pressing immediately so you're getting that raw white wine immediately and then you're fermenting it in a stainless steel tank over the winter
0: so is it still four acres that you guys are working with has it expanded since then
2: well we actually have 12 acres of property Uh, we have four acres right now we had winter damage on a lot of our grapevines sadly so we are replanting 800 vines. So right now I've got four acres of hybrids. We do Marquette and Cayuga and we make a beautiful organic rosé from that. And we are planting 800 more and we're also planting some fruit trees, which we're hoping to experiment with maybe some plum wines. So yeah, so I wish we had more land. You know, the plus side of being on a wetlands preserve is there will never be development. The downside is that there's uh, not a lot of, Free land—it's all, you know, um, beautiful public land, which is, you know, a good thing.
0: So, how much volume of wine is an acre of land with vines planted on it producing?
2: Oh goodness, um, a a lot of wine actually it depends really on the variety. Hmm. I mean, there's different varieties produce different amounts. Uh, we grow Marquette and Cayuga; they're both hybrids, and Marquette is a red grape that we use to make a rosé. Is a very small yield. It's a tiny grape with a very small cluster, um, but the flavor is really extraordinary for a rose. And the Cayuga is like a classic Hungarian painting of a grape. I mean, it's it's a huge dangling cluster of these shining green orbs. I mean, it's a beautiful, enormous uh, grape cluster, and that is a heavy producer which is probably four times as much as Marquette. So it kind of depends, I think would be the answer, but it's a lot more wine than you can drink in a year. I'll tell you that. <laughs>
0: You guys had made some headlines not too too long ago for making a I think it was a, a spritzer out of sumac. Is that right?
2: That is right. Mm-hmm.
0: How did that come about? Because sumac is, is that an invasive species?
2: Uh, it is. Yeah, it's uh, I guess it's been here for so long. It's pretty much native at this point, um, but it is invasive over here in the wetlands preserve. Uh, but you'll see it everywhere from Newports to you know um, to Georgia actually. Our drink was born really just out of frustration, <laughs> uh, as as many good things are. <laughs> we have sumac that's just been creeping on the property for years, and we have tried to cut it down. We have tried to pull it up. We have tried to pull it out, and we just couldn't fight it anymore. And we thought, you know, let's let's do something with this. There's a relief. Really Popular historic wild foraging drink, uh, which is like a sumac tea. And we thought, you know, any infusion, any tea, any drink could be technically made into wine. I mean, if you think about the chemistry of it, it's the presence of a sugar and a yeast that the sugars get converted into alcohol. So we thought, yeah, let's try it. So we added some organic sugar. We made um, a tea from 50 pounds of wild harvested sumac from our property and we fermented it and made a sparkling sumac drink which was delicious and it tasted like a little bit like a raspberry iced tea and a brown ale I would say mixed together.
0: Is that something that you guys are still doing?
2: It is when the harvest is good. Yeah. It's it's uh since it's a wild forage product, it's very dependent on you know what nature offers us. And the thing about sumac is it has this little citric acid, uh, crystals around the outsides of the berry, which are washed off in heavy rain. So we need a really hot, dry, uh, late summer and fall. And then we do pick it and we, we ferment it this year. We had a great, great summer, but then it was a pretty wet fall. So we lost a lot of that. So sadly not this year, but hopefully next year.
0: Are you guys distributing, your wine products around the region around the states uh, around new york
2: yeah we sell mostly here um since we have food and live music and we're on the wetlands preserve it's it's like a big attraction so we're a place that most people come to for the experience to spend the day to get away and Mm. you know enjoy a glass of wine on a roof on top of a cave uh, with live music overlooking the wetlands. Uh, so it's a very unique kind of thing, but we do distribute uh, ourselves to some local restaurants, to some local wine stores and liquor stores, and we do have plans to increase production so that we can kind of further that reach. So we're really excited and we're working on that in the upcoming year so.
0: Is that all part of the replanting of those 800 vines on the damaged land?
2: That, yep, and we're also trying to work on a new facility to be able to increase our production. So, we're hoping to finish up a project in 2023 that will allow us just to do that. So, yeah, very exciting.
0: Yeah, you personally are also involved in the Bashkill Area Association. Oh, yeah, you talk about some of the work that you're doing as well to protect the Hill wetlands, because obviously this is a really important resource to your whole livelihood at the vineyards.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and in addition to the BKA, part of what we do as a business is we do not use any single-use plastics. So we created a whole system of refillable wine growlers so that we could not have any glass waste at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, more than 85% of our wines are all on tap. People bring their reusable growlers. We fill them up and it's theirs to keep. So that's part of like our commitment to where we live. I do not want to be an impediment to this beautiful structure that we live on, this amazing part of nature. We really want to make it better and cleaner every year that we're here. So that's part of our promise. Um, but as the BK, they are Incredible. I mean, it's a, an organization where people are part of it in Florida, Georgia, Ohio, and people come from all over the US for this really magical spot. Um, and the BKA really fights for keeping this area safe, keeping it clean, protecting these rare species here, which some of them only exist here and in Florida, some bird species. And they also do water testing, which is incredible. I mean, we have Frank Coviello specifically. Shout out to Frank, uh, who's on our board, does water testing every single Mm -hmm. month with volunteers of his own free time uh, just to make sure that all of this water is being protected, that it is not contaminated, that all of these tributaries and all of the water that goes to and from the Bashakill and into other preserves and other lakes and other uh, streams are all clean. Um, And they've found a lot of things related to some high density housing through that method. So that has been the birth of a lot of community activism, which is incredible that it is something that's born out of the hands of people who actually live here to fight for their own right to clean air and clean water.
0: we're finding water quality issues related to the uh, nearness of high-density housing. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, there was some E. coli that has been found in uh, some of the water samples in the past six months. Hmm. So that's something that the BKA has been monitoring and talking to DEC about. And there are actually lawsuits now on the books. And part of what the BK did with their testing was to discover that and to really get that information out there.
0: Is the DEC not doing their own testing of the water?
2: No, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not potable water. It's not a reservoir for drinking. So I they don't monitor all wetlands and rivers and lakes. Um, so that's why you know community organization is so important the dc has been amazing but they accomplish a job when they're called upon to help do one but really staying abreast of what's happening in one's own community is there's nothing that is comparable
0: so if one was going to make the argument why bother being so stringent and serious about testing this all the time if it's not potable water anyway, and this isn't going to be water that people are are using and consuming, how would you respond to that?
2: Well, number one, there's a million beautiful, amazing species that could be affected. Secondly, even if you are not drinking this water, you might be swimming in this water. Your dogs might be swimming in this water. It's still a dangerous experience to be able to have an unregulated contaminant coming into this water. We also need to realize that if water is being contaminated, it's the source that we really have to focus on. So where is it coming from? How is it happening? Is it a failing septic system? Is it a city that doesn't have a municipal sewage treatment center. Is it old? Are the pipes broken? Is there some illegal sewage or cesspool activity happening here? And I think that's what's so important is that if it's getting into the wetlands, it can also be getting into your well water. I would really love for people to really take a look outside and see what wild plants are around them and and to discover them. I think that's been something that's so exciting about living on the wetlands preserve and having a farm on a wetlands preserve and something that also our experiments with sumac and many other fun things like hickory syrup and all those things have taught us is that there's an abundance of um, of learning and of excitement and of wonder, that's that's everywhere. I mean, even in urban areas, you know, there's there's chicory, there's dandelion. Um, there are all these incredible herbs, uh, and I think that that's something that is really magical about this place, where people come from all over to discover chanterelle mushrooms or reishi that grow you know in in the in the woods along the the wetlands that's something that people need now more than ever is to be connected to the landscape around them and to be connected to something peaceful and something bigger and to learn about it to become a part of it i hope that if people take anything from this it's that even the things around you can be a really beautiful an exciting place and especially if you need solace they're always there for you and I I hope that's what everyone can have whether it's at the wetlands preserve or at a park or even like you know the weeds underneath a little bench down the street I just I hope that that's what this can inspire people to do
0: Well, it has been a beautiful walk out here in the Bashiachil today, and I can't recommend it highly enough, whether it's winter, spring, summer, or fall, you should get out here and go for a hike, go for a bike ride, come kayaking. And if you see some cool birds or butterflies or fish, that's awesome. And you know what? Even if you don't, it's just a beautiful day out here in a beautiful area that we all get to share. And I'm almost back at my car now, so the timing is perfect. Thank you so much for listening to another season of Close to Home, right here on WJFF Radio Catskill. It has been so wonderful to have you here listening and to make this program for you. And I'm excited for another season up ahead. We have all kinds of interesting conversations in the works for the coming months. And I hope you'll keep tuning in. Thanks so much to Jackie Broder and Samara Ferris for taking the time to chat on today's episode. And of course, as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF, Radio Catskill. Have a great week, and hey, Happy New Year!